All right, question 12. We're doing question 12 and question 13. We're going to spend the bulk of our time on the hypostatic union and then question 13 on the atonement. The question reads this way, describe the dual natures of Christ, Jesus Christ, and explain why this reality is crucial for salvation. So, you know, our tendency is going to be to focus here on the nature of Christ, but don't forget this. Why why is that important? So we'll talk about that at the end as well. Um, When we're talking about the dual natures of Christ, really what we're talking about is the theological term, the hypostatic union, where um, the Son is both eternal God and real man at the same time. When we talk about uh, the hypostatic union, we're talking about the two natures of Christ that are inseparably united without mixture. So there's not a blending of eternal nature and human nature. Um, They're inseparably united without mixture or loss of the separate identity. He remains forever the God-man, fully God, fully man, two distinct natures in one person eternally, forever. Uh, John Walvoord in his book, Jesus Christ Our Lord, says it this way, though Christ sometimes operated in the sphere of his humanity and in other cases in the sphere of his deity, In all cases, what he did and what he was could be attributed to his one person. Even though it is evident that there were two natures in Christ, he is never considered a dual personality. When we're talking about the hypostatic union, let's emphasize three realities. One, Christ had two distinct natures. He is both human and divine deity. There's no mixture of those two natures. There's no intermingling of those natures. And like the triunity of the Godhead, though he had two natures, he was one in person. So don't say this was the divine Jesus and this was the human Jesus. It was Jesus. So there's one person though two distinct and full, complete, true natures. What is the relationship between those natures? The divine nature, not the human nature, is the basis of Christ's personhood. So the theologian William G.T. Shedd says... The second Trinitarian person is the root and stock into which the human nature is grafted. So when we look at the person of Jesus Christ, we say he is fully divine and fully man, yet he has not always been that way. He has always been divine And somewhere around 4 B.C., humanity was grafted into the divinity. So because of that, we say the divine is the basis and the humanity was added to that. And we'll tease that out in a few minutes. Um, God the Son 
had personality. He was a genuine person, a full person prior to the incarnation. So don't think that Jesus Christ only became a person at the incarnation. He added human personality to his divine personality at the incarnation, but he didn't become a person at the incarnation. He has always been a person, though in eternal past he was only a divine person. And we see his personhood in numerous ways. So in Psalm, Psalm 2, uh, we find the statement about his eternal sonship. <clears throat> Um, the kings of the earth, verse 2, uh, take their stand and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and his anointed saying, let us tear their, tear their fetters apart and cast their cords away from, uh, from him, from us. Verse 7, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord and the decree is this. He has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. So, the Father begets the Son eternally in glory, and then the Son assumes the mantle of humanity in space and time as well. Uh, psalm 110, another great messianic psalm, uh, gives us a similar principle. We understand from John chapter 6 that in uh, eternal past, Christ had will and he had intellect so um, John 6 verse 38 I have come down from heaven not to do my own will that is I'm not operating separate from the will of the father but to do the will of him who sent me and this is the will of him who sent me that all he has given me I will lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. And this is the will of my Father that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life and I myself will raise Him up, the one who believes on the last day. Um, the Jews grumbled at that. Verses 41 to 43, then verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. So there we find even in the eternal past, Father and Son working together in harmony in intellect and will. So he had that personality of, of mind and will even in the eternal past. He had power and he had authority. He could command in eternal past. So we find that in Colossians chapter 1 in his commanding of creation, his, his uh, building of creation. Christ took on humanity at the incarnation but he never laid aside that humanity. Following the incarnation, Christ evermore will be the eternal God-man. How do you know that Jesus Christ is still both God and man? What is it? Where and what? Okay. Where does it point to his humanity in Revelation 21? I'm trying to think real quick. Well, no, I'm just thinking he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. And I just think of the, uh, the way that it's written. Okay. Okay. God. You, so you have in Revelation 21, he who comes, overcomes, uh, will inherit these things and I will be his God and he will, well, that's referring God to sonship. Mary's Mary, Supper of the Lamb. So, yeah, you're in 19 then. Um, 
that's not explicit that he is still in, still bearing his humanity. So look at um, First Timothy chapter two, um, verse five. There is one God, and there is one mediator also between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus. So Paul is explicit in Second in First Timothy two that Jesus Christ is still bearing his manhood. Think about a simple one. Acts chapter one. He ate with his disciples after the resurrection. Yes. So that's John twenty twenty one. Still had flesh. And he ascended in Acts chapter 1 to heaven in that same body. Yeah, well, uh, are you verse, what chapter are you in? 417. That's a hint. It's not explicit. But Zechariah 14 verse 4. He descends from heaven and his feet touch the Mount of Olives. And the moment his feet touch the Mount of Olives, the mountain is split. So that is the human deity, Christ, physically descending. And remember what the angel said to the disciples in Acts chapter 1? The very way he went up, he's going to come back. He went up with a body, he's coming back with a body. Um, so multiple passages in the scriptures um, help us to understand that Christ has maintained his humanity uh, once he gained his humanity at the incarnation. Um, we also see in um, Romans 8, Hebrews chapter 7, he intercedes for believers because of his ascended status as the God man. So he intercedes for us because he's like us. In humanity. Um, in all these things, the divinity and the humanity is the dominant and controlling power in Christ's person. Um, so again, Shed says this Jesus Christ, the Son of Mary, had so much power and only so much power as the divine nature in his complex person pleased to exert in him. Sometimes, Consequently, he was mighty in his acts. So think about, think about the miracles. And you see the omnipotence of God in those miracles. And yet at other times, he was also limited. Right? So body like mine, body like yours. He got tired. He got hungry. As a baby, undoubtedly, he cried. Right? So throw... <laughs> my, my daughter's least favorite hymn at Christmas is Silent Night, Holy Night. Right? So... It's, it wasn't a silent night. <laughs> it was noisy, right? Birthing is noisy. Babies are crying. And he cried, right? It was just a natural part of being a human being. Um, so all of those things expressed his limitations even while he was eternal God. Um, the means by which Christ conquered sin and temptation was by resting on the power of the Spirit. And as our brother in the back 
um, pointed out earlier, you, th- this goes to the question about his impeccability. On what basis did Christ not sin? The word impeccability refers to the fact that Christ couldn't sin. So we know he didn't sin. That's how he could atone for our, for our sin. But on what basis did he not sin? Because if he rested on the divine nature, then honestly, that's not really helpful for us. Because how do we say, be like Christ, resist sin, be like Christ? Ah, yeah, well, he was divine. And I can't do that because I'm not divine. So how do I fight against sin? Look at your Bibles. Luke chapter 4. This is so helpful. Luke chapter 4. What does it mean to be full of the Holy Spirit? That's a real question, not a hypothetical. So, good biblical counselors, you've been through a bunch of stuff in training already, you've done basic training, you've had a bunch of questions talked to you about. What does it mean to be full of the Holy Spirit? Ephesians 5. To be full of the Spirit is means what? Walk by faith. Okay, hold on to that. You're jumping ahead of me. To be full of the Spirit. How many, how many of you have kids? Little ones? Little grandkids? How many of you watch Poo? Winnie the Pooh? Come on, hold it high. It's Winnie the Pooh. Seriously. How many of you know Poo Sticks? Have we talked about poo sticks in here? Oh my goodness, you need theological training. <laughs> poo sticks, you know the game poo sticks? It's the greatest game in the world, right? It's like a Winnie Pooh. Yes. I'm single, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. Oh, you, you need to buy the books. They're, they're either free or like 99 cents on Kindle. You need, to, you need to educate yourself. This is important. So no, poo sticks, right? So Winnie the Pooh, and Tigger, and Eeyore for sure, right? And Piglet, they all get sticks. And they go to the bridge. And they all drop them on the count of three. One, two, three, drop the sticks. And then they run to the other side of the bridge. And they wait to see whose stick comes through first. Eeyore, of course, never shows up because he's Eeyore, right? But they see whose stick comes out first. And the winner wins poo sticks. It's a great game. Seriously, you need to play with your kids. When we go on vacation, there's a particular place we go on vacation regularly. My 27 and 30-year-old daughter still say, Dad, will you take us to the bridge so we can play poo sticks? Seriously, we were there in May and we played poo sticks. Um, so it's, it's the greatest game. So much fun. And then Dad shows up and he plays poo rocks and sinks the sticks. But that's a different thing. What's happening in poo sticks? This really does have a theological... Uh, idea to it. What's happening in poo sticks? The sticks are under the control and domination of the current of water. The water is compelling the sticks under the bridge. That's what it means to be controlled by the spirit. You're under the domination and control of the spirit. How does he do that? Ernest. (laughs) Colossians 3. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, right? So that passage in Colossians 3 parallels Ephesians 5. So the Spirit controls us by the word. But he compels and he 
He leads us by His Word. Now, I'm asking all that. Come into Luke chapter 4. Notice Luke chapter 4. Sometimes we read Scripture. I don't know if you guys do this. We read Scripture and we just kind of pass over words and don't pay attention. Listen, every word's important. And you're going to see that in this passage. Luke chapter 4, verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? It means He's being controlled by the Spirit of God. Now, the point of Ephesians 5 is, he says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. He's not talking about indwelling. Indwelling is for every believer, but filling is intermittent. In that, sometimes I'm filled, controlled by the Spirit, and sometimes I'm not. So, when I am up and I am serving my wife and I'm speaking words of grace and kindness and love to her, that's a manifestation of the fruit of Christ in me. And I'm being controlled by the Spirit. But when I am sinning against her, I am not being controlled and not being filled by the Spirit. I'm in rebellion and disobedience in that instant. I'm still indwelt by the Spirit. I'm just not letting Him lead. Which is why Ephesians says, be filled. Let Him lead you. Right? So when we get to Luke 4, that's what we're seeing. Jesus Christ is being controlled by the Spirit of God. And then he says, Luke says, he returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness. And we're going to see in just a minute, this is the wilderness of temptation. And the whole, and Luke wants us to see that the whole time that Jesus is in the wilderness, the entire time that he is being tempted by Satan, he is under the control and domination of the Spirit of God. And in fact, as we get through that chapter, through that section, notice verse 14. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. That doesn't just mean the Spirit told him where to go. It means he is subjecting himself to the means of the Spirit to guide him and lead him. He's in harmony with the Spirit, controlled by the Spirit. Okay? Turn the page, verse 18, when he goes to teach, he says, the Spirit of the Lord is on me. So four times in this section, we see that he he is overtly under the Spirit of God and the control of God. Now, think about the temptation. How did he resist Satan? Um, This is not a trick question. The Word of God. What's the Spirit's normal means by which He controls us? The Word of God. So we see Jesus in the temptation not using His infinite power and His impeccable nature as the God-man, as the God-man, to resist temptation, but he is using the normal means that is available to every person to fight against the temptation and to resist the temptation. And that is the controlling work of the Spirit of God and the normal means that the Spirit uses, which is the Word of God. Which means he's a high priest who can identify with us. He knows the power of temptation In fact, he knows the power of temptation way more than you and I do, right? So earlier this morning, I'd had a little burrito 
And I finished my burrito. I was taking and finished my coffee. I was taking my coffee cup back to my office and setting it on the on my desk. And um, and I was walking through the fellowship hall next door, and there are two buckets of Hershey nuggets. And I just got to tell you, Hershey nuggets. And I said, No, you've had a burrito, you've had enough calories, and I can go on, right? And I resisted the temptation. I'm not 100% sure I'm going to be able to resist that temptation all day because they're going to be sitting there all day calling my name, Terry, Terry, toffee nuggets, right? My point is the temptation to sink us, to make choices that are ungodly. And there's nothing wrong with eating a nugget. My problem is like eating 12 nuggets. But the, the thing that leads us into temptation, it doesn't take much pressure. All of the forces of hell, everything Satan had at his disposal was unleashed on Christ. We have never felt the power of temptation like Christ has felt. And he used the normal means available to every believer to resist. And that's so helpful for you and me. Yes, and throughout his ministry, right? So you find attacks by the Pharisees, questions by the disciples, sometimes unwitting and sometimes not unwitting, um, and all kinds of other pressures that could have led him astray. And he just uses the normal means that are available to us to resist against that. Um, Bruce Ware's book, uh, the God Man Christ Jesus, so helpful. Page, and if you're making note, page 83 and 84 is going to be really helpful. I should have brought it with me to read, but I didn't. Um, but really, really helpful. Does that make sense? Any questions about that? Does that address what you and I were talking about? Great. Yeah. Um, consequences of the hypostatic union. <clears throat> so as we think about the hypostatic union, both natures are necessary for redemption. So as a man, Christ could die in our place. That's the whole point of the Old Testament sacrifices, that while they withheld God's wrath for a season, they couldn't permanently remove sin because a goat can't die for a man. It's not a man. So it necessitated, the removal of man's sin necessitated a man dying for sin, yet not just a man, because a man is finite, and can't absorb an infinite amount of wrath. So it takes someone who is deity. Yet it can't be just deity, because then you've got the same problem as the goat. Deity dying for man isn't dying in man's place. So he needs to be both God and man to absorb our sin. That's really the, the her- part of the heresy that's involved in uh, John's first letter. And you see this intermittently throughout the book, that he's constantly fighting for... Uh, a savior who is both deity and man, and there is resistance to that uh, in the churches to whom he's writing. So he says, for instance, uh, verse 22 and 23, who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? A, a, A liar and a heretic is the one who says that Jesus is only man and not deity, Christ. This is the Antichrist. This is the one who is opposed to Christ. The little a, he's not talking about the big big a, Antichrist, the, a particular person. This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. 
Whoever denies the Son and His deity does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. So when you, when you affirm both the humanity and the deity of Christ, then you have um, the Father. If you deny one or the other, you don't have the Father. You're not in fellowship because Christ can't die and atone for sin apart from being the God-man. Now, as you try and wrestle through this interplay, not intermixture, but this dynamic of how these two natures that are full and true relate to one another, there, there are tensions. So let me, let me just draw out some, some of the tensions. Some of the actions or attributes are indicative of the entire person, that is, both his humanity and his deity. So as the Redeemer, Christ had to be both God and man. So when we see Christ on the cross, it is as the God-man. And both natures were necessary for the process of redemption to be accomplished. Um, in his ministry of prophet, priest, king, he needs to be both God and man to fulfill those functions and those roles. So you look at the one person, Jesus Christ, and you see both divine and human natures. We see it in John 1.14, right? The Word became flesh. The Word, that's His deity, became flesh. That's his, his humanity. And dwelt among us. And we saw His glory. Was it the glory of the man or the glory of God? Yes. It was the glory of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So we looked at Him in His humanity and we saw His deity as well. So we, they saw His body, obviously. But they also saw, though, there's something way more than just this. And they saw something of His glory. In fact, three of them saw His glory in its fullness at the transfiguration. So sometimes when we see Jesus Christ, we're seeing what He's doing as a manifestation of both parts of His nature, His humanity and His deity. Some statements are true only of His human nature, though the whole person, the God-man, is the subject. So Christ ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. So it's making that statement about the one person, the God-man, but it's His body that ascends. So His body is absent from earth. His body is present at the right hand of the Father. But is Christ gone from us? No, because he's omnipresent. So he is localized in his body, ascended to heaven, body at the right hand of the Father. But he's omnipresent in his deity. It's a brain buster, isn't it? The Father is... But the Father doesn't have a body. So the Father, the Father's at the throne, but the Father's everywhere. He is not localized in body like the Son is. The Son has one body, and that body can only be in one place. Though in His deity, He is aware of all things, everywhere, and is everywhere, omnipresent. So the body is local. The body one day will leave the throne and descend to earth, hit the Mount of Olives, 
Zechariah chapter 14, the feet will touch and he will be enthroned on the Davidic throne in body, though he remains everywhere. It's not like he's left the right hand of the Father. He's still at the right hand of the Father, but the body's not there anymore. So we're saying Christ ascended. So we're making that statement about the totality of his being, though really what we're talking about is just, it, it only refers to his body because he still remains everywhere. His body is... No. He See, this is the beauty. We get Bluebell, but we don't have to have it. Yeah, and I think we don't get fat. So it's so great. Yeah, so we know whatever whatever his resurrected body was, that's what ascended to heaven. That's what's still in heaven. That's what's coming back. That's what will always be. And that's what our bodies will be like. So we can eat. They are localized. They move really fast. There are no barriers. He moves through the wall, right, when he goes to see the disciples. But that's his localized body. You say... When the disciples saw him coming through the wall, they said, <laughs> they, they told Thomas later, Jesus came. I told you I was spit zone. <laughs> Jesus came. Well, yes, but Jesus was also omnipresent everywhere. But So they're talking about the totality of who he is, though it was really just his body that was there. Yeah. No, you're good. No, because he no, because he had <laughs> Yes. That that's where we see that's where we see other aspects. So right, it's his body walking on the water, but it's really the divine power that's being manifested in that moment when he's when he's passing out dinner to 5000 people from a little boy's food. That's his body. It's a real body like Jack's and mine. And we would say, Jesus Christ. And they said, Jesus fed the 5,000. But it wasn't, it wasn't the physical, it wasn't coming from his physical body, right? That was, that was the divine nature that was empowered in that moment, empowering that moment to keep multiplying that food that breaks it off and it never stops. So Jesus Christ had, prior to the resurrection, all the limitations of your body and mine. He got tired. He slept. He slept hard. Why is he sleeping hard in the bottom of the boat? Well, I think part of it is he was, had to teach the disciples a lesson. But it's also, it's just physical weariness. And he's in the body. And you, you've had times where you wake up and, you know, a family member says, Oh, did you hear that storm last night? No, I was out cold. Right. And other times you hear it and you're awake and it keeps you awake for a couple hours and you get to the next day and you're particularly tired uh, and you're weary. And Jesus had those things he had to eat. Um, So he had all of the limitations of his body. And we would say those things. We're talking about the entirety of of the God-man, yet we're thinking particularly about his physical body in that moment. And that's all that we're trying to make distinction of here. Don't say God was hungry. God's never hungry. 
Was Jesus hungry in his physical body? Absolutely he was. God is sovereign. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. That's Hebrews 2 and Hebrews 4. He sympathizes with us in our weaknesses. He understands temptation. He understands limitation. Has any of you ever prayed, Lord, I'm so weary? <clears throat> Sometimes it's just physical weariness. You know, there's some there's some Sunday mornings I wake up and I go, Lord, I'm just, I'm tanked. <laughs> and I've got to pour myself out. You've got to strengthen me. He understands that way better than I do. Because our Savior's been there. Other times I'm weary, just not body, but soul. I'm just tired. Tired about a battle with personal sin. Tired of difficult relationships and challenging situations and hard decisions that need to be made. And you just you say, Lord, I'm weary. Does he understand that? Yes, he knows the temptation better than I do. Because he has had the full effect of Satan poured out against him to entice him to fail. <laughs> Woe is me if ever if Satan ever throws that against me. Right? Because it, it doesn't take much to push me over the edge. Um and Christ resisted all that. So when I say I'm weary, he understands. He's been there in every aspect. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we... <laughs> okay, we must hasten on. So some statements are true only of his human nature, but the whole person is a subject. So that's kind of what we've been talking about. Some statements are true only of his deity, though the entire person is in view. So when Jesus says in um, John chapter 8 to the Pharisees, before Abraham was, I am. So he's talking about himself, right? He says, I. Well, who's he talking about? He's talking about himself and so the disciples would say well it's jesus christ so thinking about the entire personhood but his body didn't exist before abraham right so he's eternal before abraham there he's really talking about his deity and his divine nature um, though we're thinking about the entire person in that instance uh, some statements are true of the God-man, the union of the two natures, um, and we've already essentially talked about that. Again, Michael Reeves, Rejoicing in Christ. Um, if you don't have that, and I don't think we have it in our bookstore because I don't think I told Lacey to get it, but um, such a helpful book, Rejoicing in Christ. If the Son of God was to be the last Adam, to undo the fall, to be the head of the new humanity, to be one with his people, his bride, he needed to become human. He needed to be in real, pinchable reality what had so long been promised, the seed of a woman, the word become flesh. Our salvation, he goes on, is only as good as it is because Christ is who he is. Make him less than God and you make the gospel less than good. No free access to know a fatherly God as his beloved children. Uh, Michael Reeves, Rejoicing in Christ. Um, uh, 
great. I started early and I'm on page three out of 11. <laughs> so here we go. I'm going to move quickly f- through some of this because you know this, right? So let's think about the significance of Christ's deity. Um, he is deity and we find that in all kinds of uh, places and instances. The early church, that was one of the struggles. That's why John wrote what he did in his first letter. We've already talked about that. Uh, oh, to, to affirm that Christ is God is not simply to suggest He is God-like. Christ is absolutely equal with the Father in His person and work. Christ is undiminished deity. And that goes along with what we were saying about the triunity of God in the last session. Um, B.B. Warfield, in The Person and Work of Christ, says, He is declared in the most express manner, manner possible to be all that God is, to possess the whole fullness of attributes which make God, God. So he's not God-like, he is God. Uh, the importance, keep it in the wrong button, uh, the importance of Christ's deity Uh, An attack on the deity of Christ is an attack on the bedrock of Christianity. At the heart of orthodox belief is the recognition that Christ died a substitutionary death to provide salvation for a lost humanity. If Christ is only God or only a man, he could not have died to save the world uh, because he would have had finite limitations that would not be able to absorb the infinite wrath of God against sin. So he needs to be both God and man. Where does scripture affirm his deity? And you know a lot of these things, so I'm just, I'll just run through this. His names reflect his deity. We talked about that already. Um, when you see the names Jesus Christ and, and Christ Jesus, not invariably, but most often, be looking at the surrounding text and say, what is the author trying to emphasize? And typically, if if he says the name, not typically, not always, but typically if he uses the name Jesus Christ, Jesus first, that's his human name. He's often emphasizing something that relates to his humanity. If he says Christ Jesus, Christ being his messianic name and title, he's often emphasizing something that relates to his deity. Again, not always, but that's just something to watch for, see if that's going on. Um, So his name's like God, Lord, um, Son of God, Son of Man, the messianic title, all emphasize um, his deity. And you have... um, you should have all those references there for you, right? So his attributes, his eternal, John 1, is so very helpful for that. Um, the verb, just note this in John chapter 1, the verb was, past tense verb, indicates a continuous existence in time past. It doesn't mean like he used to exist, but like there was a starting point and from that time forward. No, it indicates that he has always existed in time past and to be more theologically accurate, even before time began. Um, He is omnipresent. um, So even while he is um, in heaven at the right hand of the Father, he is still with us, Matthew 28, 20. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Um, He is omniscient, John chapter 2. Even even in his human state, he he reveals his humanity. So we find it in in John chapter 1, where... um, that discussion with Nathaniel, right? And, you know, you were sitting under the tree. It's like, how did he know that? He's omniscient. John chapter 2, the next chapter, he says, um, he was not revealing himself to man because he knew what was in their hearts. It's not just a generalized statement, though that is true as well. He understood the nature of man infinitely well. 
but he also was, knew the direct thoughts of the direct people that were attacking and accusing him. Uh, he is omnipotent, um, multiple manifestations of that. He is immutable, that is, he is unchanging, he is, the, he is forever the same, Jesus Christ, the same uh, today, yesterday, today, and forever. Um, so he is absolutely unchanging. He is life. That is, he does not just have life, he has life within himself. So because he's deity, he is self-existent. No one created him. Um, he, has, he has his life by means of himself. He's not derived life. Along with that, he gives gifts. He doesn't receive. He he does receive gifts, but he's not dependent on gifts. He doesn't receive gifts in that sense. But he is the giver of all good gifts. Uh, Ephesians four makes that clear. We know his deity as well from his works. He is the creator. Colossians one, so helpful. He is not only creator, but he sustains that creation. Again, Colossians one, Hebrews one. He is the forgiver of sin. Um, so you're familiar with that passage in Mark chapter two, right, where he heals the man who's let down from the roof, uh, who, is, um, who is incapable of walking. And so Jesus, when, he's let down, uh, when he's let down in front of him, Jesus' response, and immediately verse 5 of Mark chapter 2 is, um, Son, your sins are forgiven. <laughs> well, who can say that? Well, who can say that? Okay, no, think about it. Who can say that? Anybody can say it. Michael, your sins are forgiven. I mean, I can say that. Well, how do you know? How do you know I have authority to do that? I mean, you know I don't. <laughs> but they're looking at him. <laughs> On what basis do you say that? Oh, let me show you. He says, get up your pallet and walk. And because I can do the lesser thing, make him walk, I can do the greater thing, forgive his sin. So anybody can say, your sins are forgiven. Not everybody can say, get up and walk. And Jesus did the one to prove the other. Um, so he is, he is a forgiver of sin, and along with that, he is a miracle worker. Um, he receives worship. Only God is to be worshipped and the fact that Christ receives worship attests to his deity. Uh, John, Again, John 5.23 is really helpful there. His humanity, the doctrine of his humanity is equally as important as the doctrine of his deity. Uh, we've already alluded to 1 John. Again, 1 John 4.2. I don't know if that's in your notes or not. That would be helpful to you. If Jesus was not a real man, then the death on the cross was an illusion. And if it was an illusion, then we are still dead in our sins and we are hopeless. He had to die a physical death to atone for our sins. Uh, we know that he had a real body, that he was genuinely man, uh, because he had a body of flesh and blood. So... Um, Walbert writes this, the body of Jesus was like the bodies of other men except for those qualities which have resulted from human sin and failure. 
So everything that makes your body your body is what made Christ's body his body, except for the sinful component of our bodies. But in every other way, his body was genuine. Um, So Luke 1 and 2 describes Mary's pregnancy, how she gave birth to Christ. Um, He had a real... He had a father who was a carpenter. He worked in the carpenter shop with his father, stepfather, obviously. Um, He had real brothers and sisters. He had real relationship with them. He had a normal development. So Luke chapter 2, verse 52 describes Jesus' development in the areas of his mental development, his physical development, his spiritual development, and his social development. In every way, he was growing in wisdom and stature before God and men. So they're just seeing to grow in stature, just, you know, like my kids used to be like this tall and now they're like up here. That's that's growing in stature, right? So, but he's not just growing in stature, he's growing in the process of, normal process of developing wisdom. So whatever stage Jesus was at, he was perfect for that stage. Never having any sin in any stage and always fully developed at that age and stage of life. Yet with a normal physical body like yours and mine. Yeah, but he obviously also know knew Hebrew because at 12 years old he was going in and debating the Pharisees and undoubtedly would have been using Hebrew Bible. Yep. So, you know, language skills. He had to learn language just the way you learned language and your kids learned language. He had to learn to eat. He had to learn to walk. All those normal kinds of things. But in all those things, he's perfect in his development. Um, he had a human. Oh, <clears throat> uh, he had a human soul and spirit. So he had a human inner man. He's a full man. So he had both outer man, body, and inner man, soul. Um, So we see him prior to the cross, troubled in his soul in anticipation of the cross. That's John chapter 12, verse 27. Um, John 11, 33. Jesus and Lazarus. He's standing outside of the tomb of Lazarus. And what does he say? What does John say about Jesus? Jesus wept, right? What does that mean? It means that he has, he has grief and sorrow, just like you and I do. He's, he's full man. All that, now, that grief and sorrow is being used in perfect ways. Sometimes I don't use my grief and sorrow in perfect ways, right? I am, I am unrighteously sorrowful in situations where I shouldn't have the kind of sorrow I am having. Sometimes I'm using my sorrow and my grief manipulatively. Sometimes I'm expressing it angrily, and Christ never did any of those things. It was always perfect in his development and always expressed perfectly, though he had all those things within him. Uh, We find him uh, in Luke, right, as he's praying in the garden before he goes to the cross. um, uh, Anguished of soul in the inner man. And, And there it doesn't mean that he's anxious like you or I would be anxious. But he he's he's torn because he's the God man. And how can the God man experience the wrath of God? 
It's, it's this conundrum of, I don't have sin. I'm about to take on sin, which is utterly abhorrent to him. How could the one who was not sin, had no sin, become sin for us? He became sin. Abhorrent. That's why he's anguished of soul. It was incongruous to his nature, both as God and man. Um, he had all the characteristics of a human being. We've talked about this. He became hungry. He was thirsty. He was tired. Human emotions. John chapter 11. We talked about that. Human names. He's called Jesus. He's called the son of David. He's referred to as a man. Um, multiple passages. Acts 17.31. Uh, Paul talks about a future day when the world will be judged by a man. Um, some key passages. Um, Yikes. Okay, let's look let's look at this. Philippians two. <clears throat> You're familiar with this passage. Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, verse five, now verse six, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, he looked at his position as God while he's in heaven and say, I don't have to hold on to this. I don't have to hold on to the position. He had to hold on to the deity. He couldn't let go of the deity. But he was willing to forego some of the glories of heaven. I don't have to I don't have to cling to that. And because of that, verse 7, he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of man, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Now the question is, what does it mean to say that he emptied himself? Wesley answered that question in the, in the great hymn, and can it be by saying he emptied himself of all but love? In other words, he gave up all the aspects of his deity except for his attribute of love. He held on to his attribute of love when he came to earth. Is that true? No, it's heretical. Um, Now, we'll cut him some slack because he was a two-day-old Christian when he wrote that. So we'll cut him a little bit of slack. But it is a heretical statement. He did not empty himself of his deity. He couldn't empty himself of his deity or he couldn't die in our place. He had to maintain his deity. So what does it mean when Paul says he emptied himself? Now, the main verb is emptied. And it's followed by a series of four participles. This is, this is the grammar portion of our session today. It's followed by four participles. And by nature, a participle becomes explanatory of the main verb. So the participle isn't the main thought. The participle explains what's going on in the main verb. And what are the four participles? Taking on the form of a bondservant. Taking is your participle. So he emptied himself by taking a bondservant. Second participle, being made in the likeness of man. Being made is your participle. It's explaining what the emptying is. Being found, thirdly, in appearance as a man. That's verse 8. And then the fourth one is he humbled himself by becoming obedient even to the point of death on a cross. And so the four participles taking the form, being made, being found, humbled, explain what he means by emptying. And so you put it all together and what does he mean by emptying? He simply means he emptied himself by adding to himself the humanity of a human, of, of, a, of a normal body. 
So it wasn't that something was lost. But he said, I don't need the glory of heaven. That's verse 6. And I'm willing to add to my deity the humanity of a body as an expression of my willingness to not grasp my position in heaven. So emptying does not mean he lost something. Emptying in this case means he added something. Does that make sense? I hope. Um, Hebrews chapter 1. Verse 3. He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation. It's He, speaking of Christ, is the radiance of His, the Father's glory, and the exact representation of His nature. And He upholds, holds all things by the word of His power. And when He had made purification of sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. Uh, so one commentator has said, He is the glory of God personified, the outward expression of the maj- majestic presence of God. He exactly represents the nature of God, and He expresses that by upholding all things by His Word. He purifies sin through His perfect atonement, and He has right to sit down in the presence of the Father. Um, so another key passage that blends both his humanity and his deity. Um, he has an ongoing mediatorial role. We find that in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Says Michael Reeves, page 53, But what was he like? Anything but boring and anemic. Here is a man with towering charisma, running over with life, health and healing, loaves and fishes, all abound in his presence. So compelling did people find him that crowds thronged round him. Men, women, children, sick and mad, rich and poor. They found him so magnetic, some just wanted to touch his clothes. Kinder than summer, he befriended the rejects and gave hope to the hopeless. The dirty and despised found they mattered to him. His closest friends found that as the Son of Man came eating and drinking, being with him was being with a bridegroom at a wedding. Really helpful. Why is a hypostatic union crucial? Uh, Oh, there we go. Uh, Rejoicing in Christ, page 53. Uh, Why is it crucial? Because if Christ is not both God and man, he could not atone for our sins. We've talked about that already multiple places. Bruce Ware is really helpful here. He says, uh, 124, God as God cannot die, but God the Son as man died indeed. Uh, Christ had to be the eternal Son of, uh, eternal God, man, to equip us in our fight against sin. Um, and we've already talked about that as well. Since Christ is the incarnate, and that makes it so hopeful for us, uh, which we've already talked about. Since Christ is the incarnate Son of God, we can enjoy fellowship that He has with the Father. Uh, here's the wonder of the Son of Man. The loving relationship that the Son has always enjoyed with His Father, He now brings to us. When He becomes a man, for the first time a human being enjoys the Son's own fellowship with and standing before the Father. In Jesus, for the first time, there is a human being living in perfect fellowship with God. Loving God with all His heart and soul, mind and strength, loving His neighbor as Himself, He is the first ever to keep and fulfill the law of God. Um, Some resources. 
The Man Christ Jesus, Bruce Ware, Rejoicing in Christ, Michael Reeves. Have I told you you need to buy Michael Reeves books? Um, yeah, so just make note of that. All right, question 13. Provide an explanation of and biblical basis for the doctrine of substitutionary atonement, explaining the implications of this doctrine for human guilt over sin. When we're talking about substitutionary atonement, um, we're talking about the reality that Christ died a penal substitutionary death to atone for sin. And if you look at, for instance, at Isaiah chapter 53, you see this idea of substitution, right? He was pierced for our transgression. So just watch the use of the pronouns in, in Isaiah 53. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell on Him. By His scourging, we are healed. Right. So this contrast between what He is and what He did and what we are and what we have done. Uh, first, first Peter chapter 2, similar. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross that we might die to sin and we might live to righteousness for by His wounds you are healed. Right. So again, this, this contrast that leans um, at least in tone on Isaiah chapter 53. Uh, by dying on the cross, Christ paid God's penalty against sin. By dying on the cross, Christ died as a substitute for humanity. So if someone is going to have salvation, it is only because of the substitutionary death of Christ. There's no one who can atone for his own sin. So John says, 1 John chapter 2, he himself, verse 2, is the propitiation, the atonement, or the covering, or the removal of our sins. He himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. So John's writing to believers, so he says, you've trusted in Christ. Christ has propitiated you, or pro- Christ has propitiated the Father and your sons have been, your sins have been eradicated. And that's true, he says, not only of you, but of the whole world. He's not saying the whole world is having a, is, is, is under the cleansing blood of Christ, but he is saying that if anyone in the world is gonna be satisfying to God, it only comes through the blood of Christ and his work to propitiate the Father, to satisfy the Father. Um, so, He's not saying everybody is covered by Christ's blood, but anybody who is atoned for, it's only through Christ's blood. His blood is completely adequate to pay for every sin. When we're talking about substitutionary atonement, we're simply talking about the fact that Christ died in our place. He died instead of us. Christ died a vicarious death. So you will often hear the term vicarious atonement or vicarious substitutionary atonement. That word vicarious simply means one in place of another. So it's it has built into it this idea of substitution. And we see that in multiple places. Um, so um, I won't turn to all of them because, frankly, the scripture is replete with them. Matthew chapter 28, or excuse me, Matthew 20, verse 28 um, It says, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom 
for many. And that little preposition for is really important. It really means substitution. It's his death in place of my death. He pays the ransom for me as a substitute for me who could not pay the ransom. He paid it. And you find that use of for. Again, you know, you read the text a lot of them. You go, yeah, 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 yeah. No. That little word for that you just kind of run over. It's an important word that denotes a particular theological concept. We find that multiple places. Uh, 1 Timothy 2 Verse 6 is another one, 2 Corinthians 5.15, and, and that's not nearly all of them. There's, there are a bunch of them through the scriptures. But I just want you to see that that for, that we're, the preposition for often indicates that substitutionary atonement. Through his substitutionary death, all the other benefits of salvation come. So things like redemption, reconciliation, propitiation, forgiveness, justification, all that comes because he died in our place. And the, the classic passage for substitutionary death of Christ is what? If you're trying to explain substitutionary atonement, what pops into your head? Okay, Second Corinthians 5.21. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's substitutionary atonement. That's the classic passage. So I, I will often say, the God, I can give you the gospel in six words. Grace, man, God, Christ, faith, hope. Right? I won't walk through all that. But if you want to take all the idea of the gospel, you can give the gospel in one word. It's substitution. He gets my sin. I get his righteousness. That's Second Corinthians 5.21. He who knew no sin became sin. That's substitutionary taking on of sin. He who knew no sin became sin that we who... um, I've just lost it. uh, That we might become the righteousness of God in Him. So we get His righteousness though we had no no righteousness of our own. He imputes um, His righteousness to us. That's substitutionary atonement. Um, What is guilt? What is guilt? Don't look at your notes. What is guilt? Knowing that you've done something wrong. Knowing that you've done something wrong. Guilt is not from God? Guilt is our status before God. It's a position. It's not a feeling. Well, it can be, but it's actually a blessing. Most of the time. Now you can, you can have an untrained mind that leads you to have guilt for things you shouldn't experience guilt for. But by and large, guilt is a tremendous gift from God because it tells us that we are born as condemned sinners. We sin ourselves and we are culpable. That's the key word. Guilt means I'm culpable. I am guilty. I don't feel guilty. I am guilty. Um, and that culpability is what is particularly important. Romans Romans 5.12. I don't know if that's in your notes or not. If it's not, it should be. Uh, Romans 5.12. Where does, where does our guilt come from? 
Therefore, just as through one man, who's that? Just as through one man sin entered into the world, so Adam sinned, sin comes in, and death through sin, so Adam sinned and now we've got death also, and so death spread to all men, that's Adam's federal headship, turning all of us into sinners because he acted on our behalf. So we are sinners because of our humanity. We're born sinners, right? We, that's original sin. And then notice what he says at the end of the verse. Because all sinned. So I am a sinner by nature and I am a sinner by deed. So I can't say, well, I would be just fine except for this culpability that comes from Adam, but everything I've done on my own is just fine. <laughs> right? No, that doesn't work. And I can't say, well, I do this stuff, but by nature, I'm tabula rasa, and I'm pure and I'm clean when I'm born. I'm, I come in spotless. Uh, no, I come in stained with Adam. So I've got both things going on. I am culpable both by nature and by deed. And both those things need cleansing, and both those things are what get cleansed as well. Um, Romans 2.15 is another passage that's really helpful. Um, when Gentiles who do not, verse 14, do not have the law, do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves. In other words, when, when Gentiles who aren't believers do right things, it's, it's a testimony to the fact that there's a, there's a common law that's inherent in us. We know, don't do this, right? And do this. So when they, when they do that stuff, we go, okay, you're living under common grace. God's given that to you. You understand that. In that, verse 15, they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience. So even the unbeliever has the conscience. It's part of God's common grace to man, right? So even an unbeliever has a conscience bearing bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or defending them. So the conscience says, guilty, not guilty. So our conscience is evaluating everything. Is this guilt or is this innocence? Romans 2, 14 and 15. Um, there's a really good book, Andy Nacelli. I think it's just called Conscience. Um, and it has a subtitle that is escaping me at the moment. Uh, 125 pages, maybe. Um, really, really helpful book. Really helpful book. Probably the best thing out there on the conscience. Um, he, he gets into that. Um, but he does just a good job of laying out what does a conscience do and then how do you relate the conscience to liberty kinds of issues as well. So he draws out all the implications. I don't know if it's in our bookstore or not. Um, it is? Yeah. Super helpful book. And if you want to teach your kids, he wrote a kid's book that takes those same principles and super helpful. Um, for for teaching kids about what a conscience is, what it should do, and what it shouldn't do. Now, the problem with a conscience is we can misinform our minds 
and end up with faulty evaluations for our conscience, right? So even the murderer appeases his conscience in some way that enables him to do that. He needs retra- he needs serious retraining. But honestly, even when I sin, my, you know, little sins that seem inconsequential, that same thing is happening. I'm, I'm doing something internally that says this is okay. And I'm, I'm either violating my conscience or my conscience isn't finally tuned enough. Now, just for encouragement, you never, even when someone's conscience is misinforming them. Um, so when I was in college, one of my best friend's dad wouldn't get the paper on Sunday and wouldn't allow his kids to read the newspaper on Sunday He thought that was sinful. Now, might that be wise? I could see where that would be wise. In preparing your heart, you know, not reading the comics before going to worship or not inciting your heart towards anger by reading the front page on on Sunday. Okay, uh, that, that could be wise. I can't chapter and verse that and say that's sin. But he put it in the category of sin. And his conscience would convict him. If I do that, I'm sinning. I think that man needs to know liberty and know the difference between this is unwise for me in preparing my heart for worship, but it's not sin. But I don't ever want to say, get the newspaper, it's not sin, and force him to go against his conscience. I want to help inform him. What does Scripture say about liberty issues? What is a liberty issue and what can you do and not do? And then now let's talk about implications and gently lead him that direction, but not just compel him, don't do that, or do that. The principle is you never want to teach someone to ignore or violate their conscience. You never want to cultivate the habit of, well, my conscience is telling me this, but I'm going to do this. Because God's given it to us to direct us to right living. Yeah, that's James James 2. Right. Yeah. Yes, yes, agreed, agreed. Okay, one more minute, I think we can make it. Um, Romans 3, you're familiar with Romans 3, and I think, is all that in your notes? Yes. Yeah, great, so we've talked about that. Um, and, and Romans 3 is just so helpful in helping us to see there is culpability and all men are culpable for their sin. And the only way out of that is... Uh, through the atonement of Christ. Only Christ is sufficient uh, to pay for those sins. Somebody mentioned uh, First Corinthians, uh, uh, somebody uh, mentioned uh, liberty issues, 1 Corinthians 8 and 9. I'm not sure what it says in your notes. My PowerPoint says 9. My notes say 8. Should be 1 Corinthians 8 and 9. There you go. Should be 8 and 9. We are guilty... Also, when our actions lead others to violate their conscience. So if I entice someone to go against his conscience, I might be right in applying that principle to my own heart, but I've led him into sin, which means I'm culpable. culpable. Um, And obviously you never want to be there. Uh, Psalm 32 talks about uh, the guilt that comes from a violated conscience. And Christ gloriously wipes all that away by his substitutionary death. 
His substitutionary atonement means that all of the sin of all who believe is fully cleansed. Our guilt is removed, so our culpability is gone. There may still be wrong perceptions and emotions of guilt, but the actual guilt, the actual culpability is gone. And our fundamental identity is changed from sinner to saint. Guilt for both man's sin nature and his sin can only be removed by Christ's substitutionary atonement. And when that guilt is confessed, it is removed. And brothers and sisters, you're going to get counselees that really struggle with this. And you need to encourage them. You're free. God no longer looks at you as culpable. He looks at you as son. Exactly. Uh, resources. Pierce for our transgressions. This came out about 15 years ago. Really outstanding resource on substitutionary atonement. I think it is the definitive work on substitutionary atonement. Bruce Demarest's book in the Crossway series on theology, The Cross and Salvation, really excellent. I don't think it's in your notes. John Stott, The Cross of Christ, really excellent uh, resource as well. Um, the Lord has been gracious to give us a bunch of really helpful resources on atonement and cross, but uh, those are those are a few that are helpful.